So today we are continuing our way through our series in the book of Luke. Uh, this biography of Jesus in the New Testament written by the physician Luke. And today we are moving into chapter 9. Now if you've been with us over the summer, uh, you may remember that we actually covered some of the ground that we're going to be looking at earlier. In uh, June, we had a, a guest preacher, uh, my friend Ari Sanchez, who, who preached on verse 1 to 6 in, in chapter 9. Um, and just the, this missionary journey of the disciples going out to preach the, the gospel and to heal. And then also a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the theme of hospitality, from moving into this hospitality focus in the fall. And we spent a good deal of time on this passage as well, verse 1 to 6, and how the disciples relied on hospitality as part of their, their mission and how God used that in their lives. And so today then, we're going to be, we're going to read this part of the passage, but we're going to focus most of our time on the feeding of the 5,000, verse 10 to, to 17. So with that in mind, you turn to Luke chapter 9. And if you are uh, using uh, the Pew Bible that's near you, uh, this is on page 866. So again, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because he, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowd learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven 
and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, your word is true bread. Your word is life. Pray that you would guide our look at this text, that we would see what your spirit wants us to see, that he would guide us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a pretty amazing passage, uh, because if you're, if you're new to the Bible, uh, there are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell the, the same story, the, the gospel story, the good news of Jesus from different perspectives. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so the first three, are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar. There's a lot of overlap in themes, uh, in stories. Um, they still have their own perspective, but you can definitely tell that they have a lot in common. Uh, but then I always laugh that, that John is kind of the artist among the, <laughs> the gospel writers, so he's out by himself kind of doing his own thing, um, and there's very little overlap with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And actually, if you look at the four Gospels, there are only two miracles that appear in all four Gospels. So one miracle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's a pretty obvious one, you know, the centerpiece of, of Christianity. Uh, but then the other miracle is the, the feeding of the 5,000 that we see in our text today. And so, in light of that, I mean, this is a very important miracle. All of the miracles are important, but this is certainly one of the most public miracles that Jesus performed. It's witnessed by over 5,000 people. And I think that it's included in all of the Gospels because it, it teaches us really important lessons about Christianity, about Jesus, about how we are to live in light of what he has done for us on the cross. And so we're going to look at this miracle today uh, in, in three sections. And, and really, this is how the, the passage naturally falls out. So there's first the need, that's verse 12. And then the problem, that's verse 13. And then the solution, and that's verse 14 to, to 17. So the need, the problem, and the, the solution. So let's start first with the, the need. And look in your Bible at verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And so you see that the disciples describe where they are. It's a, a desolate place. It's near the, the town of Bethsaida um, by the Sea of Galilee. And if, if you look at the, the bigger context that we just read, actually, in Luke, the disciples had just returned from their missionary journey. So it was the first kind of um, missionary internship for the, for the disciples, where Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel, to heal, to uh, cast out demons, to rely on hospitality. And they had seen God's amazing work, his provision, his, his power displayed. And so here they come back to Jesus, and Jesus leads them out, into the wilderness, to a, a desolate place. 
And, and we learned from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus was partly responding to the death of John the Baptist, who had been beheaded by Herod the Tetrarch. And, and so he was seeking time of, of solitude and prayer. Uh, but then also I think that, that Jesus was probably leading his disciples out for, for themselves as well, for a time of solitude, prayer, rest, and recuperation after this intense missionary journey. But of course, this wilderness retreat isn't at all what the, the disciples probably expected. Uh, because you can imagine it from their perspective. They, they wake up in the morning with Jesus, and they, they're enjoying a nice leisurely breakfast, and then people start showing up uh, because the crowd had figured out where, where Jesus was. And so they keep coming and coming, and, and Jesus, as he always does, has compassion on the crowd. He begins to teach them to heal those who are sick, to cast out demons. It says that he, he taught them of the kingdom of God, his central uh, message of the, of the gospel. But still, the day goes onward, and more and more people arrive until, I mean, probably it was almost as far as they could see in the, the hills around that, that people were gathered. And the, the text actually says that there were 5,000 people who came out to hear him. And you think about that, 5,000 people, that is a lot of people. I mean, that's a lot of people, even by modern standards, not to mention ancient first century standards. Uh, for example, uh, Carnegie Hall has 2,800 seats. So you could pack out Carnegie Hall twice, and that's the number of people who are there. Or Broadway has 500 seats. So this is you know, 10 times the size of Broadway. So it's, it's huge. And then if you've ever tried to plan an event or a wedding or a party and you think about how are you going to meet the most kind of practical basic needs of 5,000 people. I mean maybe a, a modern conference center or stadium they have bathrooms. I mean think about that with 5,000 people. Uh, they, they're, they're designed with uh, food vendors so that people can have something to eat. They have seats, they have parking lots, Sometimes, I mean, if it's a big conference center, they might even have a hotel attached with, with rooms where people can, can spend the night. And that's just meeting the, the very basic needs of food and, and shelter and, and sanitation. Uh, but then imagine that in the wilderness in the first century without modern infrastructure. And as I was, I was thinking about this, I, I was reminded of a documentary that is actually on Netflix called Fire, F-Y-R-E. And the subtitle is The Greatest Party That Never Happened. Uh, and so it's a, this, this true story about a, a guy named Billy McFarlane who uh, just ruthlessly promoted this music festival that was supposed to take place on this island out in the middle of nowhere in the Bahamas. So they bought the island, and then uh, they had a, a very aggressive marketing campaign and got uh, influential leaders, especially in New York and Los Angeles, to... Uh, tweet about it and put it on Instagram and spread it, and they ended up uh, getting tons of people to buy expensive tickets. Uh, but then it was you know, a complete logistical disaster where uh, people started even arriving for the festival, but they didn't have enough shelter, they didn't have enough food, they didn't, it, it, it just nothing was in place, and so people ended up being stranded, and uh, the guy who tried to found it actually was sentenced to, to jail time for fraud. And so, I mean, you know, hence the, the documentary. But what was interesting was I, th I thought, I wonder how many people tried to go out to the island, and it actually was 5,000 people. 
And so, you know, even by modern standards, trying to lead 5,000 people out to a desolate place uh, can lead to a disaster. And so the disciples here, as they see this, this real need, they're not being irrational. I mean, I, I think that they were probably excited to see so many people interested in the ministry of Jesus, but then they say, hey, there's a need, food and shelter. And, and so they, they do something very wise, and, and they, they go to Jesus, and they say, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And so they're saying, you know, Jesus, the, these people are coming out to see and to hear you, and they're, they're happy right now, but we don't want to see 5,000 people hungry and angry, so let's send them away, which I don't know if the surrounding villages would appreciate that. I mean, having that kind of a, a rush of, of people. And, um, but, but still, it seems wise on the surface in light of the, this great need that they see among the people. And I think that as we look at the, the world today, like the disciples looking at the crowd, that we can see real profound needs as well. Uh, we, and here are some examples. We could say material needs, relational needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. Here are some examples. So for material needs, people need food. <laughs> it's, a, it's a basic need. But according to the World Food Foundation, some 795 million people in the world do not have enough food to lead healthy, active lives that's about one in nine people on earth. And people need shelter. But according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, a total of 552,830 people were experiencing homelessness on a single night in 2018. This represents 17 out of every 10,000 people in the United States. And people need water. But according to the Thirst Project, 663 million people on our planet do not have access to safe, clean drinking water. So the disciples see needs among the people. We see needs in the, in the world as well. Uh, but then we can also think not just of the material needs, but then relational needs, that, that people need friendship and, and community, but so often people need that, they feel alone, or children need loving parents and a caring environment, but often they, they lack it and need it. Uh, we, we have this, this deep desire, this deep need to, to love and to, to be loved, uh, but so often we, we lack that as well. We have then also emotional needs, a need for peace and, and hope and joy and happiness and love and confidence and a host of other realities that are inside of us, not even visible immediately to the world around us. But then it's not just the, the material, relational, emotional needs that we see, but there are also spiritual needs. Uh, because every single person comes into the world with this hole in their heart. And that we, we have this need within us for something. It's, it's a need for, for meaning and purpose and significance, to believe that our life is connected to something bigger than ourselves. And then everything in our life ends up being directed toward trying to fill that deep existential need that we feel, that we fear um, will not be filled. 
Um, so we, we try to stuff pleasure into the hole and then we always need more. Or we try to, to stuff friendship into it or we just stuff money into it. And, and for a while it seems like the needs are met, but then they're really not in the end. And so I think then the question for each of us to think about, what do we need? What, and, and maybe even as I ask that, you think, well, I, I need to, to change my oil. I need to go back to school. I need a job or I need money to, to pay the rent this month. And, and those are definitely real needs. But then if you think, what is the, the most deep need? What is the true existential need of your life? And, and that need then is not a new iPhone, ultimately. That the, the real need that we feel is a, is a need for meaning, for purpose, uh, to, to have a hope for eternal life, a need to, to know that we have a relationship to God, a need for, for confidence at death. So we have these, these real needs individually in the world. So then we, we face the question, who or what can meet the needs? So many needs in the world. And this is really where we go from the, the first section of this passage then, looking at the, the need, to looking at the, the problem. Verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go buy food for these people. For there were about 5,000 men. So the, the disciples, they see the need, and then they, they have the bright idea of going to Jesus. And then Jesus says something completely and utterly shocking. He says, you give them something to eat. And it's funny, there's a footnote kind of or parenthetical statement in the Gospel of John that it says that, that Jesus said it knowing what he was going to do, but to test them. So he says, you give them something to eat. And they're completely floored, thinking, how are we going to give them something to eat? Because they don't have enough food. They say we have five loaves and, and two fish that they had gotten from a child, as we know from another gospel. And they don't have enough money because they say, well, we could maybe go and buy enough food for 5,000 people, but we can't do that either. So we, ha we do not have the resources to do what you're asking us to do. And you can see then the problem that... The that Jesus is saying, do this. They're saying, we, we can't do this. They're having to confess their, their own inability, their own lack of, of resources. And this is, I think, where, where we can begin to identify with the, the disciples in, in this problem. Because often I, we, we pray, we go to the Lord with the needs that we see in the world around us. And we say, uh, you know, Jesus, have you noticed all of the hunger? Do you notice all of the, the spiritual needs? Do you notice all the people who, who don't have water? Do you notice all the people who are, who are lonely? What are you going to do about it? And then Jesus says to us, you give them something to eat. <laughs> you deal with the needs. And, and then we, we are, we're forced to throw up our hands and say, we don't have the resources. We don't have the money. We don't have the time. And I, and I think that, that this is such an important realization for each one of us. Yeah, because in a moment we'll see that, that God does use the offering of this small child. So it's not that he doesn't use what we have. It's not that we shouldn't care about the, the needs that we see around us, that, that God is, 
is faithful, but there's, there's a sense in which we, we look at the needs and we see how small we are compared to it, that we can't meet the material needs of the world perfectly. There are not enough resources. That we can't meet the relational needs perfectly because it, we, we don't have enough strength within ourselves. That we can't meet the emotional needs of others because eventually we're going to let them down one way or another. And then we, we definitely, in and of ourselves, from our own strength, can't meet the spiritual needs of others because we fall short every day of the glory of God. But I think that, that one of the, the dangers, is, and especially, honestly, for, for pastors and politicians, <laughs> religious leaders, political leaders, there's a danger of, of setting themselves up to act like they can meet the needs of the 5,000 that they, from their own strength, can provide. So, you know, a pastor can say, you know, give money to my ministry, and then God will provide for all of your material needs. Or, or, or you can follow me, and I'll meet your, your spiritual needs and your emotional needs and your, your physical needs that, that I'll be able to, to care for you. And then people listen to the lie, and then it always ends up being fruitless in the end. Or down the same line, the, the politician will say, give money to my campaign. And if you do that, I will be able to meet your needs. You won't be sick anymore. You'll have perfect health care. The, the economy will be great. You'll have education. You won't have any sort of emotional needs anymore that I, I can meet those needs. And, and people believe the promise, but then again, it's, it's fruitless in the end. And so one of my... <laughs> desires as a pastor is for people to know that I cannot meet all of the needs <laughs> um, and, and that, that I cannot meet the, the material needs, the relational needs, emotional needs, and, and that if people expect me to do that, that they're going to be disappointed over and over again. Um, and I've heard you know, other pastors say that, that we're just beggars showing other beggars where to buy bread and, and pointing people to one who truly has the solution and not trying to pretend that that solution is somehow in ourselves or in the, in the resources that we can well up within us. And so we see the, the need, we see the problem that we can't meet the need in our strength, but then finally uh, we see the solution. Uh, look at the second half of verse 14. And Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, and they did so. And, uh, and he had them, sorry, they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Again, they see, that, they see the need provision, food, they see their inability, the problem, and then as, as they're confessing their, their inability, they're able to see the, this um, incredible solution, which is actually Christ himself. And notice what, what he does, that he, he has the people sit down in, in groups of 50, he takes the, the five loaves and the two fish, and he begins to break them and to give them to his disciples, and they're being distributed to the, to the people in the crowd. I don't know how long it would take to distribute food to 5,000 people, but probably quite a while. But the, miraculously, the food keeps coming and coming until everybody has something to eat. 
It says that they ate until they were satisfied, that no one went away hungry. And at the very end, they had 12 baskets full left over. And so you can think of it as one basket for each of the 12 apostles to take home for, for their dinner. Um, but, of course, we, we see the, the miracle. But then there are many uh, throughout history, but especially in the last 200 years, who have really doubted the reality of this miracle that it, that it actually happened. Um, even a lot of New Testament scholars who, who start with the assumption that there, there's nothing supernatural. I had some, some professors uh, in seminary who were down this line. They, they started with the assumption that, that there's nothing supernatural, uh, that, that you just discount it right out of the gate. And, and I've heard actually some pretty amusing explanations of uh, what happened here from some scholars that they say that maybe Jesus had a cave stuffed with food and that, that he secretly brought out the food while, while no one was, was looking. So it was this amazing planning and logistics. Um, or I've had people, people, <laughs> heard people say that uh, everybody had brought lunches with them and so everybody had plenty of food. And then they, they see the, the little boy share the five loaves and the two fish, and they see the value of sharing, and they all shared their, their lunch, and everybody had something to eat, uh, which w wouldn't really be a miracle. Um, I mean, maybe it would be a miracle, but not, not a, a, this miraculous production of food, because that's clearly, if we're, if we're reading the text for what it's saying, that it's communicating that there was a miracle. And so if you're, if you're struggling with this today, I think it's important to remember that there are really only three options for what happened here. So the first option um, is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just made it up, that it, that it never happened at all. But if you think about it, it's in all Gospels, all four Gospels. They're writing it at different places, uh, relatively disconnected from each other. And so it would be really hard to all fabricate a miracle independently of one another. But then it would also be pretty much the most stupid miracle to try to fabricate because you're claiming within the lifetime of eyewitnesses that something was performed in front of 5,000 people and then you name the place. It was near Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee. And so all it would take is to basically go to the place and, and talk to people who were there to verify whether or not this happened. So that seems like a, not a good option. The second option is that Jesus somehow did an incredible magic trick. And you hear of magic tricks. I, I saw one where somebody um, made it look like the Statue of Liberty disappeared, and he had some sort of turning mechanism underneath people, um, that people can do pretty impressive magic tricks uh, to fool others. But as you think about that, every single witness to, to Jesus shows him as a reliable person. I mean, he's, he's hailed even by those who, who don't believe he's the son of God as the, one of the greatest moral teachers in history. And C.S. Lewis said that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's telling the truth. And so if we're saying that he's a liar, that, that he's pulling the wool over the eyes of the people, and then every single testimony to the character of Jesus hails him as trustworthy and righteous and good, then if you think he was put on trial or, or anyone was put on trial and all of the character witnesses unanimously said, this person is trustworthy, they're, they're, they're righteous, that there would be reasonable doubt in the jury. So that's also, I think, not a good option. And so then really what that, that leaves us with is saying that something happened, that there was a miraculous event here. 
and that is recorded for us by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so that we can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And so we see then, we see what Jesus did, but it's also interesting noticing how he did it. Because if you think about it, he could have had manna descend from heaven. He could have miraculously had food just appear in people's stomachs so that they were full. Uh, but instead, what he does is he, he takes the offering of a child, the five loaves and the two fish, and then he, he multiplies that to feed the multitude. And then you think, well, why? Why would he do it that way as opposed to all the other ways that he could have done it? And I think that, that it's this really beautiful picture of how God works in the world, that he, he is free to work directly but so often the way he works is, is actually through us. He works through the, the weakness of his people. He takes the things that, that, that are so small, that are, that are foolish according to the world, and he's able to, to multiply it to do great things that, that we could never imagine. And so, you know, I was saying that, that we see all the needs, that there are material needs and emotional needs and relational needs and spiritual needs, and that we can't meet those, and we see those needs in Garnet Valley and Chad's Ford and Wilmington and in our, our region, and so we say, can we meet those needs by our own strength? No, we can't, but yet part of the, 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 the mystery of the way that God works is that he takes flawed instruments. Oh, he takes little churches, little church plants like Hope Church, and he, he takes people who, who don't have it all together and takes the, 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 the five loaves and the, the two fish that we have as we are admitting we, we can't do it. We can't meet the need. And he's able to take that and to do things that we never could have done in and of ourselves. So an example of this would be you know, sharing the gospel with somebody, telling somebody about Jesus and what he, he does. That Maybe you try to do that and you get nervous and, and you get all turned around and you're really unclear and, and then you, afterwards you're thinking of all the things that, that you wished you said. But then somehow God takes the, the five loaves and the two fish of your, of your words, as small as they are, as powerless as they are, and then he, he uses it as the power of God to bring people from, from death to life, to introduce them to, to Jesus, to bring them from enemies of God to, to children of God, that he's able to meet deep spiritual needs through something that seems so weak and so foolish. Or you can think of, of somebody who, who has it on their heart, an uh, orphan crisis, and so they decide to foster or they decide to adopt. And they think, what, what can saving or helping one child do for all of the problem? It's not going to solve every need in the world. But then there's some kind of underground current of grace that God works where, where he is accomplishing things through us and through what seems small and foolish to do more than we can imagine, maybe more than we'll even see or know in this life. And I personally find that to be just an incredibly comforting and emboldening thing, uh, that, that our economy here in this world doesn't work like God's economy, that our economy works by supply and demand and by scarcity and by having the resources at hand. But, but God's economy works by taking what is weak, what is foolish, what doesn't seem like it's going to be able to meet the need, and then using it in his wisdom to shame the wise. And so, just as we wrap up today then, one last question I think that we need to, to ask from this passage. 
and from the solution that Jesus provides. Why this miracle? Why this miracle at this time and at this place for these people? And I think that we get a really great clue of this in the Gospel of John. Um, and because Luke tells the, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but he doesn't tell as much about what happened directly afterward. But John tells us that as soon as it, the miracle took place, that Jesus perceived that the people were going to take him by force and try to make him king. Because they realized, if we have a king who can make bread from nothing, that this will be the ultimate powerful nation, that this would be the ultimate earthly king. And so they wanted to, to force him into that place before it was the time. And so it says that, that Jesus withdrew again by himself to the mountain. And the disciples got in the boat and headed across the, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, in another miracle, walking on water, met them in the boat, and they ended up on the other side. And so the crowd woke up, and where's Jesus? Where are the disciples? So they send out their scouts, um, and they figure out where Jesus is again, and then they follow him. So it's sort of a stalker issue. And, and they, they show up to Jesus, and, and you would expect Jesus to be gentle, but Jesus is actually fairly hostile when they find him the next time. Listen to what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but, beca but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so he's saying, you're not chasing me here because you're seeking me. You just had a really great all-you-can-eat dinner, and you want more. <laughs> um, and, and so then he gives them a warning, and he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And so Jesus is saying, don't stop with the material provision, because if you do that, you're going to miss me and you're going to miss what I'm doing in the world. But rather, look at the way I could provide for your material needs and, and know that I can actually meet a deeper, a greater need, that I can meet your, your spiritual needs. And that's what we heard read. That's what Cindy read for us in our Old Testament text from Deuteronomy, where God says that, that he provided manna for the people so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he met spiritual needs so that we would know and believe that he can ultimately meet eternal spiritual needs. And that's why in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so then you, you see the promise that it says in Luke that they ate until they were satisfied. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a meal, there is a bread that we can eat. And when we eat this bread, that we will never be hungry again, we'll never thirst again, that it'll, it'll meet and fill that, that, that deepest need. Because ultimately that hole that we have within ourselves is, is a God-shaped hole. And we can try to stuff other things within that. But the only thing that can fill it is, is the bread of life, repenting, Trusting in him, his righteousness clothes us. His, his life fills the void. His Holy Spirit comes into us. And that's also what, what this meal here today is, is a picture of. Because listen to what, what Jesus says to the crowd who had uh, come to find him again, who had experienced this feeding of the 5,000. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him.